So our scripture reading uh, for this morning is from Judges chapter 1, uh, excuse me, Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, that's on page 203 in your pew Bible. So if you grab one of those Bibles in front of you on the pew rack, you can turn to page 203. Also, if uh, you don't have a, a printed Bible of your own and you'd like one, please feel free to take that pew Bible home with you as a gift from us this morning. Okay, so page 203, Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, hear God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinam, and from the Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather the men at Tabor, Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Bill, for that kind introduction. We are really glad to be here with all of you, and um, we're just so grateful for you as uh, the Brookside campus for inviting us into your church family for this season. And we've had the privilege of getting to meet some of you, and we really look forward to getting to know all of you as time goes on. And our, our time here in the residency, in the pastoral residency program, wouldn't be possible without Christ community's commitment to and generosity uh, towards the program. So to the wider Christ community family also, thank you. Now, a little bit about us um, before we pray and jump in. So I grew up in Northern California, and then I met my wife, Megan, while we were in undergrad at UC Berkeley. And uh, we'd grown up in California, lived there all our lives until we got married. And then nine months later, we picked up, drove across the country, and moved to Chicago for a seminary. And we were there for four years. And we had both of our boys while we were there, Declan and Theo. Declan's about two and a half, three years old, and Theo's six months old. And all our family lives back in California still. But we had um, my mother-in-law, in town actually last week. She got to hang out with the boys and, and help us out and um, 
it might be too early to say, but uh, I think we might be winning over our family to Kansas City already. Uh, it's just such a cool place, and, and we've had a lot of fun so far, um, and we're looking forward to the rest of our time. All right, would you guys pray with me? Lord, God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this morning. God, for the people you have gathered here today, um, for the opportunity to worship you together, to hear from you. God, open up our hearts, open up our minds, that we would hear what you want to speak, what you want to teach us. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So Bill told me uh, last April that this would be the text for my first sermon as pastoral resident. And uh, I was in the middle of my last, sem- my last semester at seminary, and I was tired, and Megan and I were in a state of sleep deprivation from the baby. And, uh, and so I go to talk to Megan, and I tell her, this is, this is going to be the text. And she just looks at me and laughs. She says, I think Bill might be pranking you. <laughs> <laughs> And then we laugh about it for a little while, and, and then I really start to think that, that the passage is a joke. And, um, and, and then we get here and come to find out it's not. We, we really are, as a church, we're preaching through a whole series on the more obscure, kind of forgotten stories from the Bible. And um, they're, uh, they're stories that we're teaching on purpose because there's something to learn there. And it's called the, the forgotten family story. And so when I was thinking about families, I kind of was thinking this is what families kind of normally do. Um, we sit around and we remember stories about um, strange things that happened or, uh, or we retell the moments that, that might be forgotten if someone wasn't there to tell the story. And I've been thinking a lot about my own family recently, actually, because my grandfather actually passed away last month, kind of like as we were moving here. And um, we're going to do a memorial service for him, which, which is good. We're going to get to remember. We're going to get to reminisce about the time that Grandpa Hayes used to climb telephone poles, which was his job or uh, how he grew up in Oklahoma, which being from California, I, I didn't know that until recently. Or the time that he wrestled a grizzly bear with his own telephone pole hardened hands, which, yeah, that, that didn't actually happen, but I don't know, might have. Uh, but something that did happen is, is I actually found a voice message on my phone from, from three years ago. It was from my grandpa. It was from before the dementia kind of really set in and, and made him forget. But when I listen to it, I can hear him telling me about himself, reminding me. Just what his voice was like. His kind, gentle spirit. The way he loved his family 
his children, his grandchildren. As long as I have that voice message with me, I'm, I'm not going to forget those things. Friends, uh, the stories that we have in the Bible are, are kind of like God's voice message to us. Telling us about himself, reminding us who he is, who God's people are. And he wants us to, to tell their stories, to retell them, and to remember them. This is, this is how we remember our often forgotten forefathers and foremothers. What they did, what their lives were like, and what they taught us, and what they continue to teach us, even today. And so today, this morning, we're going to look at two foremothers of our faith, Deborah and Jael. And if we forget them, if we forget Deborah and Jael, we're going to miss out on the vital lesson they have for us. God delivers through leaders who raise up leaders, even from outside the camp. I'll I'll say it again. God delivers through leaders who raise up leaders, even from outside the camp. The leaders of God's family, it's our family, the ancestors, people of God from ages past, these are our forefathers and our foremothers. They're the ones that God raised up to raise us up. Even though when we remember them, they're, they're kind of, usually sound kind of strange or different than we would expect. Um, and God uses them. Like Bezalel and Aholiab from a couple weeks ago, and Miriam from last week, and Deborah in jail. Deborah was a leader in God's family who knew God's voice. She knew it so well that she, she spoke it over God's people and she called them to follow God's command. Mothers and, le- mothers and fathers of God's family, they know God's voice and they call others to follow his command. This is what a leader does. And Deborah, she's a prime example of biblical leadership. She knows God's voice. In the book of Judges, we come in, we get, we get a picture of the people of Israel entering into the promised land, living there, and descending into spiritual and political chaos. They're, they're really in bad shape. They've forsaken God They're chasing after idols. And God hands them over to the surrounding military forces. And then they cry out to God for help. And he delivers them. He rescues them. And then they do evil again. And he saves them. And then they do evil again. Over and over. Cycle, repeat. But notice that the Lord does not forsake them. He keeps giving them glimmers of hope through these judges. And these are the judges that we see throughout the book. 
They're leaders that God uses to deliver his people from military and political oppression and ultimately from idolatry. And as the book goes on, the judges actually themselves get worse and worse. But early on, it's better and they're faithful. And Deborah is one of them. So here as we enter into the story, in Judges chapter 4, Israel is being oppressed by Jabin, who's king of Canaan. And Jabin's commander, Sisera, is the driving force of the oppression, literally with a force of, of 900 iron chariots. And Israel is cruelly oppressed. And they cry out to God for help. And who's there but Deborah, who's been there all along under her palm tree, a prophetess and a judge. She's leading God's people by speaking his word. And she's probably best understood not as like a judge in a courtroom or a preacher on the street, but as a quasi-monarch, as a, a spiritual and political leader. But also, as Old Testament scholar Dr. Michelle Knight has pointed out, what should really stick out as we read about Deborah and her titles is not mainly that she's a woman in leadership, but that she is a prophet. Like Miriam was. And like Moses. Deborah's a prophet, the first one to be named since Moses' death. She is God's leader because she knows God's voice. And God has raised her up for a time such as this. And as God's leader, she calls God's people to obey his command. She arises as a mother in Israel, it says, who raises up warriors. Read with me the next page in your pew Bibles, Judges 5, verse 7. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Now the word translated villagers here is kind of hard to decipher, um, but actually if you just look at the context, if you look at the next verse, and, or a few verses down, verse 11, the same word is used. I think it means something, about, something like people taking up arms to fight. So who is it? Who is it that we see taking up arms to fight in God's battle? If you look back in chapter 4, verse 10, just after Bill stopped reading, we see Barak responding to Deborah and the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun. But notice how it goes down leading up to that. Deborah summons Barak. Kind of like a monarch, she's speaking to him as God's prophetic leader. And then Barak is hesitant. He responds to God's command. If the prophet has spoken, God has addressed Barak. And Israel's general has responded, if. If you'll go with me. And Deborah does. Deborah goes with him. But she says in Judges verse nine, 4, verse 9, Nevertheless, 
the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we'll get back to that later. But as the chapter goes on, the battle commences with Sisera and his forces. And Deborah speaks up again, spurring Barak on. Get up, go. Has the Lord not gone before you? That's a rhetorical question. The translation is that he has. Get up, get out of here. Deborah is a mother in Israel. In God's family, who knows God's voice. She calls people to follow him. And she's our foremother. She's speaking to us. She's speaking God's word even today. Reminding us who God is. Who God's people are. This is what the people of God look like. Mothers and fathers of the faith who step up to encourage those of us who are younger in the faith. See, I think that we have to kind of learn to accept, try to, that we need mothers and fathers of the faith who are more mature than us. Who are more mature than us. For all his hesitant and lackluster faith, Barak at least did this. He might not have admitted his lack of maturity, but um, we can read on and we can see clearly he needed Deborah's leadership. So yes, I think this means we have to admit that we're really not that mature. No matter how mature we are, we need help. And that's okay. We can do that. We can admit that. Right? I know it's, it's hard to do, but, but we can help each other. I think a way to do that is if at the outset, we all just say that we're all immature and needy. And we can start creating a safe place. A safe place for us to be weak and vulnerable and humble with each other. The opposite of this is, is what shame researcher Brene Brown calls armoring up. We're kind of walled off from each other. But we need each other too much because we're going to face lots of battles in this life. We can't be walled off from each other. We're battling amongst ourselves. So let's be a people who, who are known for armoring down, not having anything to prove, and then finding everything to gain by sharing our vulnerabilities with each other, our joys and our trials, our disappointments and our dreams. I think this also means that the children of our church family I think that they need other mothers and fathers of the faith besides just their biological parents. We're a family. The children of our church family need other mothers and fathers of the faith besides just their parents. 
So what qualities about your life? Today as you, you're sitting here thinking about it, what qualities could help you take care of someone in God's family? Are you an empty nester? We need you taking care of the young families in this church. Are you retired? We need you encouraging our young professionals who are just stepping out into their careers. Are you a fourth grader? We need you helping with our little ones downstairs. We all need each other. That's good. We're knit together in bonds of love, loyalty, and care. Because of Christ, because we've been adopted by faith into one family. Now I think most of you, or all of you, probably know this a lot better than me because I'm new, but the mission statement of Christ Community Church is that we desire to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. We desire to be a caring family of multiplying disciples. It's who we are, and and it's, it's who we're called to be. So one final word on what Deborah's teaching us. In society, in general, and in the church, women have often been told that they can only lead in specific circumstances, if that. But women of our church here in Brookside, this is an invitation for you. Deborah is your invitation. We need you. It is necessary to raise up leaders in this church who will follow God in all of life. This is what Deborah did. She stirred up the hesitant Barak and several militias from the tribes of Israel, and she led them to take on God's battle. And even further, her, her prophetic word raised up a follower of God's word from somewhere that we might least expect it. Because following God's command makes you a part of his mission, no matter where you come from. So this is where we meet Jael. She's an outsider who steps up to follow God's word, to fulfill God's word through Deborah, and she enters into God's mission. It's surprising. The narrative is actually designed to shock us. When we read in chapter 4, we're set up to think that Deborah is going to be the one who defeats Sisera through, through God. No other woman is mentioned, and she's kind of at center stage the whole time. What we do hear about in verse 11 is that Heber, the Kenite, has separated from the other Kenites who came to the land with Israel. If you look in chapter 1 of Judges, you can read about them. And then later on, we hear that Heber, Heber the Kenite, has aligned himself or made peace. Some translations say made a peace treaty with King Jabin. Canaan. 
Heber and his family have become allies with the enemy. So when Sisera, the enemy, flees into the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, the text kind of wants us to see and interpret her actions as, as protective, motherly even. She takes in a fleeing ally. She takes care of him. And so as Sisera is lulled straight to sleep, milk and a blanket. So are we. So Cicero's lulled straight to sleep. And then what? She ends him. Jael takes what she has on hand and takes him out. And he dies even as he sleeps. Whether Jael herself knew that she was kind of taking part in God's plans for victory, that's debated. But, but what we know is that she knew enough about the wider battle to know that Barak was looking for Sisera. The text says in Judges 4.22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him. And said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And then she hands the body over to Barak, her hands having wielded the decisive battle ending blow. Even as an outsider, she becomes a part of God's mission. Now, why Jael did this, we, we're not sh- totally 100% sure. As far as we can tell, she didn't hear Deborah's prophecy about herself, but it's clear. God had been working in her before she ever showed up in Israel's history or in Deborah's song. So in the next chapter, we get Deborah's song. And Jael's stanza is at its climax. This implies God's approval because who's speaking? It's Deborah, the prophet, who's singing. God approves of of Jael's exploits. And to top it all off, the poem ends with a curse and a blessing. If you look with me at Judges 5, verse 31, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. God's enemies are cursed to fall, like Jabin and Sisera and his army. But God's friends are blessed to be like the sun in all its strength. It comes just after a contrast between Jael and Sisera's mother. The text is all but shouting that Jael is to be counted among God's friends. So if we zoom out to the broader biblical narrative, Jael actually stands in a long line of outsider, non-Israelite women who are approved by God. We have Hagar and Tamar in Genesis. We have Rahab, who's in Joshua. And then we have Ruth, which is the book just after Judges. Ruth is King David's great-grandmother, which makes her a foremother in Jesus' direct lineage. And it's okay if these names don't sound familiar to you. I just encourage you to to check them out, to look them up and and read about them, because their stories are amazing. 
They're all women who didn't belong. Yet they were exactly who God made them to be. And he welcomed them. God is working outside your camp. He's working outside our camp. We can never think that God is not at work in another camp because his work is way bigger than we can think of, than we can imagine. Friends, Jael would not have been welcome in the fellowship of Israel. She was an enemy, an outsider, or an ally to the enemy. She was a traitor. And yet she shows up at the climax of Deborah's prophetic song. Do you feel like you're outside the camp here at Brookside? Or in the church in general? God sees you. God loves you and welcomes you in all of your particularity as an image-bearing creature of his own design and affection. He wants you, and he wants you to bring all of who you are to the table of fellowship with him and with God's people. That's who God is. God welcomes outsiders. And this, this is actually a part of my own story, part of my own faith story. I didn't grow up in the church, and so I never really felt like, felt like I belong. Um, I started going with a, a friend in high school. Then I started getting into science and biology in particular, and it just started to feel that my presence in church didn't really add up with my interest in science, which, side note, it's not true, <laughs> but that's how I felt. Um, so I left, and I graduated high school, and I turned my back on religion altogether until someone welcomed me. A friend from the high school swim team started inviting me over for dinners to his house, and his, his dad was a local pastor in the area, and before long, I just, I just felt like part of the family. Just one of my dearest friends. And eventually, they led me to faith in Christ by opening up their homes and inviting me into their stories. So if you, if you are someone who feels like you fit here, that is awesome. You're in a perfect position to be one of those people who opens up your arms, opens up your homes, opens up your hearts to, to someone who might not feel like they belong. Just be on the lookout. Be on the lookout for that. Friends, the, the reality is that the kingdom of God is actually only made up of outsiders. In Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve and how we humans were forced to live outside of the Garden of Eden because we rejected God's loving provision. And God has been on a rescue mission ever since delivering us from ourselves. That's what he does over and over. That's who he is. 
God alone gets the glory of deliverance. God alone gets the glory of deliverance because he is the deliverer. The story here in Judges 4 doesn't explicitly mention any kind of one character as the God-ordained deliverer. It's interesting because some of the other stories do. But here I think it's on purpose. The text is really clear from Deborah's prophetic words to the actual battle, to the song, that it's God. God is the one who wins the battle. We read Judges 4.23. This is really clear. On that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel. There's a lot of really cool stories, cool characters in this story, and we should look up to them. It's easy to to look at Deborah and say, oh, she is amazing, and I want to be just like her. And I think that we should should have that reaction. I've I've said as much already. Or, Or Jael, this fierce warrior who steps into God's battle, offers herself willingly. And they're great examples of leadership, of stepping up, offering ourselves to God. But I don't think the text ultimately wants us to land there because through these examples, it's God who delivers. God is the one who wins the battle and delivers his people. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, I'm more like Barak, hesitant, shaky in faith, wavering in obedience. If I'm really honest with myself, my worst moments, when sin clings closest, I'm actually more like Sisera, an enemy of God's people. I'm opposed to God's plan, fighting, but on the side of evil. This is the reality of sin. We make ourselves out to be enemies of God. And still, God delivers. It's who he is. He forgives us. He rescues us. And he welcomes us. He reconciles us into his family. We read in Romans 5, verse 10, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. As we look to God's ultimate deliverance in Christ, we see that Jesus embodies both of Deborah's and Jael's examples. Jesus is our judge, our commander, the ultimate prophet to come after Moses. He is Lord, and he calls people to follow his lead, to take up their crosses, as well as his easy yoke, and to learn from him Imitate him. Jesus is the one who knows God's voice and calls us to follow him.
Jesus is also the leader who is going out as a warrior who enters into God's battle. Against evil and against sin, Jesus is the one who offers himself willingly on the cross for us. Jesus is the one who went outside the camp to do God's battle so that we could be welcomed back in. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for saving us, for delivering us. God, thank you for entering into our broken and divided world, becoming our all-sufficient sacrifice once for all people so that we can enter into your presence together with the family of God, being freed from sin and being made into your likeness by the Spirit day by day. Thank you, Lord, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.